welcome to the 106th edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. As always, if you have any questions or comments, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. Or leave them in the uh, comments section. The comments section of Podbean, which is... uh, the carrier that uh, we use to put the podcast on. So anyway, uh, we'd love to hear from you, and we've got a lot of things to go through today. So just wanted to kind of go through politics a little bit. The first, this actually comes from uh, the part of the show that I like the best, which is the questions and answers. And I thought I'd put it up front because it falls into the politics. And it basically says, how do you think the 2024 presidential election will shape up what's it what's it going to look like and of course i i have no inside knowledge or anything my my opinion is that essentially um a successful run to the presidency means that you are the candidate who is the anti-incumbent or the anti uh, last president so when you have um Oh, and you can go all the way back. Go all the way back to the Republican Party tolerated Ronald Reagan because he won two landslide elections. So it kind of became his party. The anti-incumbent was George H.W. Bush, even though he came from the administration and everything else because he was the establishment candidate. Reagan was an outside-of-the-establishment candidate. So... Um, you know, he was kind of the anti-incumbent. And Mondale was, of course, part of the establishment. He was, he was not really, um, you know, he was, he was another guy who, he could have fit that role, but, but he really didn't. Or he was Dukakis. I guess Dukakis ran against uh, George H.W. Bush. So, uh, anyway, then, then you come around to 1992, and even though George H.W. Bush had a very successful presidency, winning the Gulf War and doing a lot of things, um, the narrative was changed to it's the economy stupid, and the anti-incumbent was, you know, flower child, um, basically hippie protester, anti-war dude, Mag- and George McGovernite, uh, Bill Clinton. And he was the anti-deal, and he, he won. He was the anti-Bush. After any parlayed that into a second term. Uh, by the end of his second term, people were tired of him because they knew that Bill Clinton was a degenerate, a liar. And those were his good points. <laughs> a crook, a crook, a liar, and a degenerate. So um, basically, the anti-Clinton was George W. Bush, who was kind of the born-again Christian, kind of uh, um, very, very steady um, kind of guy who, you know, served in the National Guard, blah, 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 blah. Um, All of this kind of stuff. He was the anti-Clinton. He parlayed that into two terms. Then you have Barack Obama. He was, number one, he was black. Number two, he was a lot younger and his, you know, and he was supposedly not as distant or as kind of uninformed as George W. Bush. So he was the anti-George W. Bush. He was, he was supposedly a lot more read in kind of new things had been a, after all, a community organizer and everything. Um, so anyway, he, he was there. He parlayed that into two terms because they basically ran stodgy 
establishment stiffs against him. First was McCain, the next was Romney. Who was the anti-Obama? Well, you know, the anti-Obama was Donald Trump in 2016. You know, Hillary Clinton was part of the establishment. Obama was clearly part of the establishment. And the anti-establishment candidate was Trump. And who did they run against Trump? Well, they ran the old, goofy, you know, just kind of quiet, doddering old man who is Joe Biden. Joe Biden became the anti-Trump. Now, it wasn't completely, it just wasn't completely one-sided that Biden would win. I mean, they had to steal an election to do this. So, you know, after they ripped off an election, but they, they basically ran somebody anti-Trump. You notice they didn't run, they didn't run Bernie Sanders, who sounded a lot more like Trump in some ways, some very, very, you know, unique ways. Uh, kind of, a lot of different different ideas obviously but you know they didn't run somebody who was more like Trump they ran somebody who was not like Trump so so who and what are the Republicans gonna run against Biden and you know I think they sense an opportunity first of all the Democrats are just still scared beyond belief by Trump that's why they're going after the Trump organization and <laughs> all, the, all the Trump organization has to do is say, my name's Hunter Biden, and I don't know why I'm being treated like this. And though uh, that seemed to me like that would get them inoculated against any further action, because Hunter Biden certainly gets away with everything. So if they just claim to be Hunter Biden, maybe, maybe they could get away with it. But they're still scared of Trump. But I think what's going to happen is you will see the, the anti-Biden, and that will be somebody, perhaps DeSantis, somebody like that, who's going to come in as a very young, um, very, very active, really engaged, out with the people. All this stuff that Biden is not. And that's who they're going to run against Biden. They're going to run somebody like that against Biden. I don't think the Republican Party really wants to run Trump again for a variety of reasons. Number one, he's going to be older. Number two, you know, there's there's all the baggage. And number three, uh, I don't think they want to invest all that money into somebody who they know is going to be a one-term president. Not even, you know, because because of law, because of law. So, anyway, that's uh, that's going to be it. Could be Don Jr. Don Jr. could be the anti-Biden. You never know. Could be somebody like that. We'll have to we'll have to wait and see. So that's my that's my deal. And and this is all predicated upon that some that the election process can be can be protected and we can have fair and free elections again i mean 2020 was a disgrace 2020 was an absolute national disgrace that an election was stolen by fraud and here's how you know the 2020 election was stolen because anybody who even says I don't really believe that the election results fair gets gets excoriated in the press. They're called conspiracy theorists, baseless claims, on and on and on. Yet there's never been an honest investigation. Yet there's never been anything that proves that allegations of election fraud are baseless. Nothing like that has ever happened. So I would sit there and I would submit to you that when people start telling you there's nothing to see there, there's something to see there.
So, you know, I, I say it's a fait accompli. Everybody knows the 2020 election was stolen. And, you know, that can't happen anymore. If we can't have fair elections, then we're done as a country. We're just done. And, you know, this is the first time really in the history of the country where people put their political party above the good of the nation. Um, look at right after Pearl Harbor. Yeah, hey, the Republicans and Democrats had always been kind of opponents and fighting and all the rest of it. But everybody got behind the war effort. Everybody. Uh, they put the country above politics. Um, even after 9-11, um, the country was put above politics, for a while anyway. Um, you know, there's always going to be politics, but there's times when, when even the most hardcore partisans, um, you know, put that aside for the good of the country. We don't see that now. What we see now is the party uber alles and uh, it's very very dangerous democrats want uniparty rule once that happens there is no more united states there is no more country there is no more anything and i hate to say it but they are dangerously close to it but hopefully if they get set back in 2022 oh god that that election will not come soon enough for me <laughs> so uh, hopefully that you know the 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 majority on the Supreme Court and there's some there's some people on the Supreme Court getting kind of old so you know they got to hold out for a while and uh, hopefully the Supreme Court can keep things sane and then in 2022 we can get an uh, there can be enough taken away from the Democrats in either the House of Representatives and or the Senate to uh, to definitely you know put a put a damper on all this just this nonsense that's happening absolute nonsense so that's it for politics okay a couple other updates um number one i will be it, it's in the works right now but i will be on another podcast it's a it's actually a prepping podcast now i know in the past i've been pretty hard on preppers and that's that's because of of all those reasons i've, I've put that you know that they're 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 living in a world that may not reflect the reality of what they think that they're they're doing and what i mean by that is popular media has kind of told them what a collapse would look like and how they would be able to behave and conduct themselves which i think is completely fraudulent because i i've actually seen a societal collapse up front close and for a long period of time and that was in the balkans and that's what they want to talk to me about are my observations from being in the Balkans so um, that'll be pretty interesting um, the people who are doing it I, I won't say it now but when it when it uh, is up and published I'll I'll steer you towards it um, you know they're, they're pretty common sense they, they kind of understand um, how things are gonna look and they're not just you know point and click and buy on Amazon although all preppers kind of do that you know it's like you know hey I've got a thousand rolls of toilet paper well what do you do when you've used the 999th roll of toilet paper how do you what do you do after that because you got one roll left so you're not gonna want to use it and you're not gonna but you're gonna have to use something so uh, 
you know, and that's that's kind of a comical example, but you know, can you store enough to get through whatever kind of situation that they foresee? And if it's open-ended, I don't know that you can do that. It's uh, it'll be interesting to discuss. Next thing I want to bring uh, people up to speed on is I had cataract surgery. That's been this ongoing drama since April, and it's finally basically over. So. Um, but you know we live in an age of medical miracles I would be you know have some pretty crummy vision if it wasn't for that and you know if this had happened 40 or 50 years ago there were some there were some treatments but they were pretty dire they would remove the lens of your eye you had to wear contacts you had these terrible glasses I mean your vision was really a problem so um, you know this is one of those things that that um, you know, I'm fortunate that I live in an age of miracles. I, I can tell you right now, my father had to go through the same thing I did: sudden onset of cataracts, and the options that were available to him 50 years ago um, were pretty grim compared to you know um, the stuff that was available to me with as far as uh, lenses that could cure. This is the first time in my life. I've been cured of my astigmatism. Uh, you know, corrective lenses is kind. Of, hey, they they're they're good, but you know, my astigmatism has been corrected. I have I have 2020 vision for the first time in my life in both eyes. Now, my real close-in vision, I still need some glasses for. I can use readers, or I actually have a little set of prescription glasses, which are, um, which are just a little bit more refined than the readers. But uh, and I do need those up close. I mean, I do need those up close. However, I will tell you that having the 2020 vision when I'm driving and doing things is is really been a miracle. So uh, that's that's been the kind of deal. We'll see how it affects my shooting. It's been adversely affecting my shooting because when you have one eye done, then you wait a few weeks, have the next eye done, and one eye is recovered more than the second eye. <laughs> it's it's pretty bad but as as they gradually get get up and even out why I'm hoping that uh, it'll make things a lot better okay we will start now uh, it's a little early but we will start with our Q and oh no one thing before the q and I got the last update on the m1917 rifle project and effectively what I've learned okay uh, just to give the quick recap I got basically a pile of parts and a stock for a poorly sporterized 1917 rifle. Um, the the barrel was actually left original length and everything, so you know it could have been recycled into something else. But it all the parts had been scrubbed and kind of sanded a little bit, so you can barely read the markings on the barrel and. You know, that's the way it was. So no original finish uh, on any of the parts. The ears had been removed. You know, an, an M1917 rifle has the great big ears up on top. Well, those had been taken off with some sort of tool and polished and in a job that wasn't really very, very well done. So there was no salvaging this rifle. There was no restoring it to military um, condition. There just wasn't. So... What do you do with it? Well, after some mulling and wanting to keep this a low-cost project, I just decided to kind of reassemble it as a sporter. And what it needed, 
um, the biggest thing was I had all the parts and so I reassembled it and um, had a gunsmith he had to get a scope bridge you know a scope mount and he had to actually grind it to the top to match the top of the receiver because of the way the receiver had been done and then he had to drill some holes to uh, you know the two forward holes there was actually a rear hole that was already drilled which was pretty fortunate so we used so we did all that and you know but unfortunately the labor involved was about 175 bucks so that was a lot more than I really wanted to put into it but that's that's what it was uh, I went ahead and I blued it myself using Brownell's Oxifo blue which is good stuff we'll see how long it lasts you know it's but it's it actually doesn't look bad it looks looks pretty decent so I've done all that um, I have all the the trigger and all that is original kind of parts so that's the way it is so I assembled all that I got some steel rings so I have a steel scope mount and I have steel rings and I put in a vintage uh, Weaver K6 I had lying around uh, that wasn't doing anything else and that's a really good scope I mean it's a really really nice scope in many ways um, so I put that on there and it has a really nice vintage look to the whole to the whole situation there uh, the stock was some kind of cheesy aftermarket stock that somebody tried to carve a animal on the side and we don't know what kind of animal it is because it's pretty original looking but other than that it's a functional stock so I got the rifle all together I got the scope on it and I test fired it and then immediately there was a problem okay the immediate problem was the safety would disengage or I should say would engage to the point where it would lock the bolt so you fire around and your bolt was locked because the safety lever had gone forward there obviously was something wrong with the safety mechanism took it all apart replaced the little spring inside and you know the the spring that was in there was pretty mashed down and the replacement spring <laughs> was about almost almost 40 percent more of a spring so um, we put it in there and now it works all fine it no longer does that the rifle shoots very well um, you know hey this is nothing gonna win Camp Perry but hey it shoots it shoots great groups for a hunting rifle it's fine and so I've got it out to 200 yards it's great and you know it works here are the things I learned number one there's no such thing as a cut-and-dry easy project I thought that we would be able to put a fairly reasonable scope mount on there and that that cost I had estimated uh, would be a lot lower you know certainly well under a hundred dollars as it turns out that wasn't the case um, the next thing was the steel on an M1917 rifle is so good um, that it was very difficult to drill the holes into it's it's one of those things that you know it, it's going to take really good drill bits and and it was a lot bigger challenge um, the gunsmith knew that he'd worked on these rifles before but it was a big challenge and so he he had to he did that uh, the other thing was there's always problems that that crop up um, one of the problems is that the the safety you know we kind of had it together I probably should have test fired it ahead of time but I didn't um, but anyway we had it all together and of course the safety is malfunctioning not to the point where the rifle's unsafe but to the point where the rifle's too safe because after you fire it the bolt's locked and you can't even get the empty out you got to 
pull the uh, push the safety back forward again. So, uh, you know, once that's all, once that's all ironed out, it's fine. The bolt is not very smooth. I'm I don't know the origins of this rifle, and and I would really call it a parts kit when I got it. Even though it was complete, it was really a parts kit. I doubt that it was a USGI rifle that had been arsenally redone, then sold, and some guy decided to bubba it. I doubt that. What I suspect it is, is that the in the late 80s, early 90s, some... 1917s came back into the country and and I think they even had barreled receivers and things that were that were that had come back in importers had brought them back in these things have been laying around my guess is this was a barreled receiver Remington barrel Remington receiver and that all these other parts had been just put on there and they really weren't fitted although the headspace was is good it's not very smooth. The bolt is not very smooth. Not like my other 1917 rifles, which are in, you know, original GI condition. So my assumption is, is that this was a barreled receiver. The guy bubbed it, took the ears off it and all that to make himself a rifle. Had bought basically USGI parts because back in the late 80s and 90s, those were still cheap and very plentiful. They're still pretty plentiful today, but not quite as cheap. And, you know, bought the bought the crummy stock for it, which is why the older stock never... Um, that's where I think this was. So, you know, when you have something like that that's assembled from parts, um, odd parts, not even from the same rifle, you're going to have a, a, a difficult time because... Even though the parts are supposed to be interchangeable, they're really not. So it's always going to be more difficult than you than you think to to resurrect something. And I can tell you, this is a Remington um, barrel and Remington receiver, but there's Eddystone parts all over it. There's even a few Winchester parts. Now that can happen in rebuild, but I think it's more than likely that those were just parts that were bought from Gun Parts Corporation decades ago, and, and that's that. But and so it's going to be more cost and it's going to be a lot more effort than you think. The good part about it is I've returned this rifle from completely dead to now it's at least a at least a useful rifle. It's useful. It's it's got some you know it's 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 a good rifle. It's a good rifle. The bolt, like I said, is not very smooth. But other than that, it's it's fine. And uh, um, I would certainly use it for deer hunting. I mean, it's it's no no two ways about that i don't know that i would use it to hunt anything dangerous like uh brown bears but you know i mean it's 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 definitely there i could put more money into it and have the bolt maybe slicked up a little bit but hey we'll see i want to keep this low very low cost the other option would have been to for another 200 you know again it's always this this thing of for another 250 dollars you can do this um you could have it have it rechambered and and effectively have the barrel bored out to 35 Whalen, which is a good, really good cartridge. Um, 
if I did that, I'd also, it's still got the 26 inch military barrel on it. I would actually have that barrel cut back to probably 22 inches or something. But anyway, um, not really going to do that. Going to leave it the way it is because I have 30 out six. I load 30 out six, and I really don't want another caliber at this point. The final reason is is because uh, outside of the receiver, all the other parts are USGI mil spec good parts. You know the like I said the the markings are a little worn um, because somebody had scrubbed and and somehow tried to polish them. But but if you found a trashed Remington 1917 that just needed a barrel, uh, this would be a good donor candidate. And so down the road down the road it's worth keeping in its present configuration so it could be it could be used to donate a barrel to a, a another rifle and then you get a criterion barrel for this one and you know life goes on so anyway uh, people really aren't into restoring 1917 so I don't think that's gonna happen maybe its next owner will will be able to do that <laughs> so anyway this is the last and final update on the M1917 rifle project and uh, uh, that's it you know that's just it it cost the, what I learned is it's more money and more trouble than you think to resurrect a uh, um, to resurrect a project and to kind of make it at least usable if not restore it to a hundred percent okay we will now start my favorite part of this podcast which is questions and answers and uh, you know we're gonna have a lot of myths that are that are broken I guess this could almost be a Mythbusters episode but but uh, we got a few other things in here but we will go after some some myths today and and uh, and definitely break those wide open so our first question comes from listener Justin who said excluding the AR platform which parts kits or which parts kit would you recommend building Okay, that's a, that's a pretty broad question, and I think I'll, I'll narrow that down a little bit. The first thing I'll eliminate are all the specialty builds, like, you know, a Bren gun. I got a Bren gun kit, so, you know, I want a semi-automatic Bren gun. A lot of those things, anything that fired from an open bolt has to be converted to a closed bolt, which, you know, that's kind of gunsmith stuff right there. Um, there. There are a few exceptions, but that's pretty much gunsmith stuff. So we'll leave that. We'll also leave out these, like the flat, the AK flats, which is a the receiver flat. It needs to be bent and riveted and all that. Um, that seems to be very, very difficult also. And I don't know that there are a lot of AK parts kits around here. You see them occasionally advertised. But you do have to source, like with all parts kits now, you have to source a U.S.-made barrel. So that kind of complicates things a little bit. Um, so we'll kind of leave those out, but that's possibility. Although, you know, Forgotten Weapons had that deal where back in the heyday when you could build AKs, um, the riveting and all that was a, was a nightmare. And uh, so they've gone, you know, through that a couple times of, of how difficult that actually was. The AK, for being such a simple weapon, is not... A simple weapon to build so I would definitely exclude that and I would say that the only the only rifle that I would really build from a parts kit would be an FNFAL 
and the reason I say that is because you have DSA who can supply you the parts and there are some FAO gunsmiths around the country so if you run into a roadblock there's at least the expertise to salvage that and uh, get that back on track so I would go with the FNFAO there are a couple of other options um, you can get if you have a Sten parts kit or can get enough parts um, there is a place Philadelphia Ordnance where you can get plans for a semi-automatic Sten receiver plus the semi-automatic specific parts um, that's pretty cool and you can get the you know right now they, they produce the barrels for them and if you're gonna do an SBR um, you can you can do that I don't know the process for building an SBR from scratch um, how that's different from modifying a gun I've been down the SBR route a couple times but that was with things that were already made and uh, and it's just getting the permission to put the shorter barrel on which which is a very cool you, you think that's oh, really not worth the trouble but once you do it you go yes this was worth it especially like with the semi-automatic Thompsons you know it makes night and day difference between those two uh, guns and their uh, 16 inch barrels and the 10 and a half inch barrels with the FALs there's still a few parts kits around the Israeli parts kits that came in a few years ago a lot of people bought those kind of on speculation and uh, they probably turn up either at gun shows or on gun broker now and again so that's a that's a good one to start from because you can get an Israeli it's fake markings but you can get a an Israeli marked receiver from DSA and you might even be able to get and again this is this is making it a little easier but you might be able to get a barreled receiver from them and get a barreled receiver and a headspaced bolt and then you know really the build is pretty simple after that so if you can do that you could you could uh, depending on the level of skill you could do that whenever you have to put a barrel into a receiver there can always be some dimension and tolerance and manufacturing variables in there that that make it a lot more difficult but uh, if you buy a barreled receiver uh, it's it's pretty simple I actually built a Garand from a barreled receiver CMP this is god this is 15 16 years ago they had some uh, barreled receivers that they sold and they were like come with a 200 bucks a piece or something and uh, I'd had enough parts that I just had to buy a couple of things and I was able to assemble my own Garand but you know um, and checking the head spacing and all that but um, you know hey if you have the parts and you have a barreled receiver even somebody like me who is all thumbs and about as mechanically inclined as a chimp can can put something together so I'd go with an FAL if you go something more complicated than that just make sure that you have access or at least know a gunsmith who can um, who can bail you out if if you get in over your head that's the that's the advice I would give about parts kits um, but you can get very nice guns from parts kits and of course the the AR building the retro ARs has been around for like nine or ten years now and uh, those are very cool projects very very cool projects okay here is our next question are magnum rifle rounds better than standard rounds 
Ooh, well, taking the Magnum moniker away, like obviously a 357 Magnum rifle is, or 44 Magnum rifle is not better simply because it's called Magnum than a, say, a 308 Winchester. Um, but when you're talking something like, is a 300 Magnum better than a 30 6? Is a 7 millimeter Magnum better than a 270 Winchester? Uh, you know, those kind of, is a 300 short Magnum better than a 308? I, I think that's where you have some room for discussion. So my answer to that is is pretty simple. Unless you have a need that requires additional velocity from a bullet. Um, and the, the need is something more than machismo, something more than bragging rights, something more than, than all this. Um, then you frankly, you, you don't need it. A couple of examples where that is absolutely essential usually come with range and it's usually like people who do the extended range hunting a dubious practice I think in many ways but but people still do it or long range target shooting that extended long range those guys started out um, I think most of them are into 338s and all these other more exotic and much more expensive things. But a lot of the, those guys started out with 300 Magnums simply because that was the only cartridge that could get the bullet downrange with enough oomph so that they had um, usable trajectories. Um, the trajectories were flat enough so that they could they could reach out beyond 1,000 thousand yards. It's been my experience that... The Magnum rifle caliber craze, craze if you will, or whatever you want to call it. And the reason people keep coming out with something a little more powerful, you know, the, the Remington Ultra Magnum, you know, 300 Ultra Magnum or whatever. And a lot of that's just driven by machismo. When you're shooting deer at 200, maybe 250 yards at the most, uh, is anything more than a 30-06 really required? I would say no, but it's we 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 come from a bigger is better culture, more powerful is better, and you know that's all well and good, but the the downsides of that are, um, most people go with much more scope than they need, and they go with much more round than they need, and you know shot placement is still king. So a, a 243 Winchester that you can shoot better than your 300 Ultra Magnum is probably a better choice. Um, it's, it's probably a better choice. The, the additional recoil and muzzle blast of some of these Magnum rounds actually hurts the hunter because the, he becomes less accurate, develops a flinch and bad habits and you know, anticipating the increased recoil. Um, I kind of like the military model, which says lower recoil is better. And, you know, you can put shots on target more easily. Um, you know, and, and face it, you know, you can you can see that in national matches. Take an M1 Garand out at 600 yards and take one of the 5.56 Wonder Guns out. And you can see there's a... There's a big difference usually in the scores with the same shooter and the same conditions.
so I would say that most people go out over scoped and over overdone and it's it's a macho thing um, you know I just I just don't see the the need I also the other side of the coin is expense I mean if I were actually starting to to hunt again seriously and needed a new rifle which I don't but if I did I'd probably get a 6.5 Creed more because that's just a very efficient and very effective cartridge and anything I want to shoot will probably stay shot with that and the fact of the matter is good hunting loads run around $20 to $25 a box whereas a 300 Magnum or 7 millimeter Magnum or, or something else it could run me $40 a box you know just do the math just there you go plus the fact some of those 300 magnum and maybe even a seven millimeter magnum they're gonna burn a barrel a lot faster they're gonna heat up faster I mean the, when you look at quality of practice there are a lot of things that magnum magnum rounds really don't do very well but um, I've known enough hunters and I've known enough people who I have, you know, 300 mag. They never say magnum. It's always like mag, you know. So there are a lot of guys who brag, you know. It's it's wee-wee measuring. That's what it is. Um, but a lot of times I think they're their own worst enemy by doing that. So I think, you know, a 270 or 25-06 is a great cartridge that should not be overlooked. And especially 30-06, you know, 30-06, this is kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but, um, you know, the 30-06 is a great rifle cartridge. It is a cartridge that just became a standard, and everyone had it so that it became passe. It's like 38 Special. Everybody had one. So a lot of this you know different caliber and and magnum craze and all that just came from people wanting something different something something that uh wasn't ordinary because the 30-06 as excellent as it is has become ordinary um in the 19 you know 50s 60s 70s 80s but it is still really really good as a matter of fact i never liked the 30-06 when i was growing up but to me it was too many people were all like, yeah, my odd six, blah, 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 blah. And, and it was kind of the opposite situation where everybody was bragging about their odd six. And I was like tired of hearing it. But um, as I started shooting, especially vintage military weapons, you you have to like odd six, you know, because a lot of them are chambered in it, especially the U.S. ones, but also a few foreign ones. And then I really became to appreciate it. And uh, I think it's really a great cartridge. And uh, I don't... I mean, it'll kill anything on the continent, including the big brown bears. So there you go. Do you need anything more than that? Because I'd rather have good shot placement with effective 30-06 loads than the recoil and muzzle blast of a, you know, Remington Ultra Magnum that I <laughs> just <laughs> just want because it sounds more macho. So that's that's the story on that. Okay, this one came from somebody was listening to a podcast, which can be a mistake sometimes. And I think it was the Vortex Nation one. Was the 7.62 Tokarev 
really developed from the 30 caliber Luger. So I, I went actually and listened to this podcast. And, and though they're completely wrong, they don't know what they're talking about. The 7.62 by 25 Tokarev is dimensionally almost identical to the 7.63 Mauser cartridge, not the 30 caliber Luger cartridge. This is what happens. <laughs> this is how Fudlore gets spread. Guys who think because they know something, they can just kind of look up or they remember something and then they then they get uh, behind a microphone and start spouting out the wrong information. And in fact, and here's why it's important. It isn't important for any other reason than this. Uh, 7.62 by 25 should never ever be used in weapons that are chambered for 30 Mauser, which is, as far as I know, really only the broom handle Mauser pistol and a few copies of that. I think the Spanish made a copy and the Chinese have made copies. The Talker Rev round should never be used in a in a Mauser broom handle Mauser Mauser C96 pistol because the pressure is a lot higher. Be like um, using oh I don't know a Magnum level cartridge in a very old 38 long Colt revolver. It might dimensionally fit in there, but you don't want to have that pressure in a gun that was never designed for it. So that's the deal. 30 caliber Luger was not the ancestor of the 762 by 25. All right, here is the next one. Can single action revolvers be effectively ha fanned? Not hammed, fanned which is holding the trigger back and using the other hand cycling the gun by using your opposite hand on the hammer cocking the hammer okay what that is what that really is is you get a single action right you you pull the you pull the trigger back and then you pull the hammer back and it won't stay cocked it will just go forward and of course the action of pulling the hammer back will will cycle the cylinder um, I've seen that in the movies and that's where it belongs do not ever do that with a real gun for a variety of reasons um, first of all it's a good way to bang up your hand it's a really good way to do that second of all it's not really aimed fire Third of all, you can break internal parts in a single action gun by handling them like that. And, um, you know, it's just something that the Western was such an icon and such a staple of the entertainment business from, you know, really the late 1920s up to the uh, early 1970s that, you know, they had to spice it up a little bit. And fancy gun handling, quick draw and fancy gun handling was one of the ways they spiced it up. You know, nobody would have been that interested in Chuck Connors as the rifleman if he if he didn't have that, you know, kind of trick Winchester that, that fired like a machine gun. Total fantasy. But something they threw in there to make it, make it cool. Same thing with a lot of the gun handling that, that goes on. Twirling revolvers and... Uh, quick draw which has probably put more holes in the bottoms of holsters and in people's legs than anything else I can think of so all that 
leave that to the movies that's just all movie nonsense okay here's one that really made me mad uh, and this this really really got under my skin because <clears throat> it is completely untrue and in the charged environment of today it reinforces some stereotypes about how people were treated um, and it goes back to the First World War and this comes under the myth busting part this was spread I was at a shooting match and this was being spread by a guy who was a docent at the World War One Museum in Kansas City and I don't really know what a docent is but I guess they're like little volunteer guides that go around and he said the following that african-american soldiers in world war one u.s soldiers were given inferior equipment such as 1917 revolvers while the white troops were giving given model 1911s okay this is complete undulterated bullshit complete garbage okay First of all, there was a shortage of 1911 pistols. Well, you know, before we go that, let's just go to where who carries pistols? For the most part, it's officers and then some specialty troops. Like a machine gunner might have a, a pistol. Now, a whole machine gun crew, each man probably won't have a pistol. Um, the guys who carry the ammo boxes and the tripod and all that other fun equipment. Um, the guys who manage that usually have rifles and the machine gunner who carries perhaps the gun itself um, or, or at least at least part of it uh, will have a, a sidearm. So specialty troops like that, maybe some artillery troops, people who need both their hands to do their primary job. In World War One, I, I know all reenactors like have a pistol because that's just kind of the way it is, and that goes back to Civil War reenacting and everything else. But the truth of the matter is, very few soldiers have access to a sidearm in a war, and World War One was no exception. So most of the people who have it are people like perhaps a supply sergeant, perhaps the company commander, maybe the platoon leader, you know, people who are busy directing troops and busy writing out messages and doing things like that uh, so that they're not really carrying a rifle. That kind of changed in World War II, especially in airborne divisions. Everybody, including the commanding general, would carry a rifle. But going back to, to World War I, the premise of this guy's statement was that the revolver, which was inferior to the 1911, was given to african-american troops because somehow they rated inferior equipment and that is not true that is just simply not true there was a shortage of 1911 pistols they as much as they tried to increase production it wasn't going to meet the demand and other countries had these problems too most notably the french they had to buy ruby pistols in you know 25 and 32 caliber from this from spain and and all the rest of it so compared to other countries the united states was actually in a very luxurious position because we had three excellent pistols the 1911 the smith and wesson 1917 revolver and the colt model 1917 revolver all of those three are excellent sidearms 
and they were they were just given out as needed so there is no there was no conspiracy to give african-american units the the revolvers because they were seen as inferior to the uh, 1911 now i i think where some of this kind of comes in is that the there were some troops and they were african-american troops that were given over to the french command they were sent over to help the french and they were given french equipment which meant they would have had french rifles and french everything else they had french overcoats french helmets french equipment was generally inferior to ours generally you know the chauche was inferior for everybody there were some u.s troops that were sent to help the british and in some trained with the british and they were given british rifles and one would assume some other equipment from the british so that they all kind of fit in we were using the same kind of helmets so that wasn't a problem and and it's logistics it's like the french can't give they weren't going to get 30-06 ammunition for just these these few units that were attached to them so they were going to it's much easier if they use eight millimeter label and everybody shoots an eight millimeter rifle and that way the logistics works but there was so there was some inferior equipment by our standards given to black troops now what the, the thing about it is most of the people who carry a sidearm even in the segregated units are the officers and in most cases the officers were white so you know i mean just draw your own conclusion it, it his his uh statement does not make any sense because there were very few black officers um, there were black dentists and some of the junior officers were black but not but most of the company grade officers and the field grade officers were white and that's just the way things were back in those days and the other reason which is proof that that didn't happen was the army medical department did not have a segregated treatment system if you were wounded didn't matter what color you were um, you were treated triaged and treated uh, according to the severity of your wounds and the need so there's no way that that people were were not treated because of their skin color it was just one thing nobody nobody cared it was all colorblind so and i'm sure that the issuance of equipment especially pistols which were important but not the most important thing in the world um was probably the same way if you had a case of 1911s you handed them out till they were gone then you handed out revolvers just that simple so african-american troops were not by design or by conspiracy or by any other reason given inferior equipment there was no deliberate plan to do that so that that really got under my skin <clears throat> okay how does recoil and muzzle blast affect accuracy already answered that it, it basically degrades your marksmanship skills especially if you're a hunter so if you can minimize those two things you're going to be a lot better off in your opinion what is the most effective duty pistol cartridge available today and is it popular i would have to say and i i as much as i like the 45 acp i think that's a great pistol i think 357 sig is a great pistol and so 
Um, if you want some higher capacity, higher velocity, and some of the just great benefits of you know feeding bottleneck cartridges usually feed pretty well for in a pistol um, I think 357 sig was a sleeper is it popular no it's not popular because ammunition is too expensive and it is also difficult to find so not a lot of agencies adopted it and not a lot of civilians adopted it, and it's really kind of a you know kind of a I don't know I don't want to say proprietary because a lot of people have made made uh, pistols for it but it is definitely one of the less popular rounds today but I think it would be a very very good choice um, in a military setting I don't know because you have to use for the most part a full metal jacket bullet so I don't know um, I've never really tested one but it would be very interested to see bar barrier penetration and a few other things that might be useful in counterterrorism. But hey, we'll see. We'll see. But I think that is definitely a very the concept is is flawless. The execution seems to be very very good. It's just availability and popularity. There are a lot of good ideas that just don't go very far, and this was one of them, I think. Okay, here's another question. I have seen in the movies. Okay, this is this is always this is always going to tell you this is going to be a problem. In the movies, assassins' rifles being carried in suitcases or cases, and then they're opened, assembled, and fired. How is this possible? Okay, um, it's not possible. And if you go back to, you, you can go back to. I, I there's so many movies where this happens I think it happens in the James Bond movies a couple times it happened in Dirty Harry when the guy's up on the you know he's up uh, on a roof and you know they open a case and it's not a gun case but it's shorter and you have the the action in the stock and then you have the barrel and then you have the scope separate and you have a you know maybe a magazine with ammunition and the guy basically puts the barrel into the rifle puts the scope on it puts the magazine in and then all of a sudden you know he's the death sniper it's got a death machine there that never misses that that for the most part isn't possible i, I suppose some crafty gunsmith could for you know enough money could make something that would almost return to zero every time you did that but using the common equipment that you usually see in the movies it's not really possible and it's having a switch barrel or quick detach barrel rifle is a very very tricky proposition anyway and getting it to lock up tight enough and consistently enough so that it would return to zero seems to be almost impossible to me that seems almost impossible to me uh, same thing with scope I mean even a um, even very very good scopes return to zero is tough um, return to zero is tough but that's actually I think easier to achieve than getting a barrel into an action and into a stock and getting that to return to zero because there's almost there's there are a few military mounts that you you take them on you take them off and they'll return to zero 
but they don't really have that level of precision that you're looking for that that's certainly being exhibited in the movies you know so I would say for the most part that that is a that is just more fantasy it's like fanning pistols you know it's a, there's a lot in movies that is great entertainment and a lot of fun but it really does not reflect any kind of reality so I would say that that's uh, and that's one of them so you know it's uh, one of those things if anybody has one or if you know about one you know please uh, email me a, a link or the specifics and I'll be be happy to look at it because I'd love nothing better than to say hey there is an exception and here it is but the if when you're looking back over almost 50 years of movies and you see it done over and over and over again it's it's it leads you to it would lead somebody who does not know guns in depth that that is a very easy thing to do when it is in fact not an easy thing to do and it would be and it's not an easy thing that you would achieve so that is the end of that all right well that brings us to an end of this 106th episode of old school guns the podcast that tells you like it is you can always email me with any questions or comments kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com and you can also uh, put the comments up on podbean you know just put it put it there in the comments section and i will get to it but until next time this is old school guns out <laughs>